the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Return after our long layoff. Joining me here in the Grotto Pod is Bridget Quid, author, mega author. Yeah. Yeah, uh, completer of two books. Oh my god! Welcome back Thank to the world. Heavens! Did you notice we're both wearing V-neck sweaters? Uh, you know, I did. Yours is a much deeper V than mine. That's dance. That seems right. Yeah, that's a little more feminine than the yep. regular old, uh, I came of Dude. age in the 80s and listened to indie rock <laughs> V-neck sweater. Oh, it is very like Over that. white t-shirt. Yeah, it's, it's, it's on purpose. It seems that, but that's a rarity. All I'm saying is it's cold in here today. It is right now. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, it's not going to stay cold. Uh, Minutia, the reason why I'm not wearing a regular white t-shirt is because I think I'll have to take this off. Correct. And I didn't want to be caught with the James Dean Arthur Miller white T-shirt going on. Right. After a certain age, it never looks right. It looked there's so there's this picture of Arthur Miller. You mm-hmm. may have seen it. It's in the fifties, mm-hmm. and he's with Marilyn Monroe, khakis and a yep. white T-shirt, yep. and she is looking up at him, beaming. Uh huh. And that is like the pinnacle for Jewish writer types to be <laughs> Arthur Miller in that picture because he's kind of bald too. Doesn't matter. Oh no, he's bald. He's sexy. He's like I don't care. I don't he's care totally if I'm bald. Sexy in that picture. Look up. I'm wearing this white T-shirt. I'm, I'm Arthur Miller. I'm Check me out. I'm hot. Yeah. And I'm... The smart is the hot. With Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. And look at the way she's looking at me. Joan, yeah. She look at Joan Maggio like that? Nope. Looking <laughs> at me, Arthur Miller, like that. That's interesting when you say it like that. Like, so, neither standard lookers. Neither what? Oh, Joe D? Yeah. Well, but he was Joe D. No, I get it. I'm just saying. She said, have you ever heard such cheering? And he said, well, yeah. <laughs> she did. You know that story, right? No, I don't, but I... Well, they went to do a, uh, they were married, and uh, yeah. they went, she was doing something for the troops, and there were 50,000 troops, and she oh, said, yeah. Joe, have you ever heard such cheering? Well, yeah, actually, yes, I, a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, not the dignified man we thought he was. He was just smart enough to keep his mouth shut. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. When I grew up, and this is all awesome digression. For sure. When I grew up, the the, the common understanding was Joe DiMaggio, great guy. Yeah. Ted Williams, bad guy. Correct. As you get older, you realize Joe DiMaggio, kind of a petty guy. Yeah. Not super smart, kept his mouth shut. He seems pretty stupid, actually. Ted Williams, a handful. Yeah. But kind of a fun, big voice guy. Also honest. Honest. Yeah. Yeah. And and he became one of those old guys I aspire to be who talks super loud. Yep. Roy. Yes. Way back in the day, used to always say that Bjorn Borg was bad. Oh, and And, and McEnroe was good? McEnroe was good. Turns out. I think he's right. Bjorn Borg was just kind of crooked, right? Crooked. I mean, he was having sex with young girls. Yeah. Uh, but you know, not, I, mean, I think they're young girls. And, you know, was cheating on his wife, all this stuff. And right. McEnroe was just, like, yelling and being right. asking so what's how the, he wanted. What's the lesson here, gentlemen? Keep your mouth shut. And people will just infer the best things possible exactly. about you. Exactly. I always thought McEnroe was just a guy from New York. I, I like him, too. I do, too. I mean, I always he irritates me sometimes, but I don't mind because I like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today, our guest oh, yes. is Cheryl Osula. Correct. Oh, thank God. Because as I almost said, I said, oh, shoot, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> Cheryl Osula is really, she is a first-time novelist. Uh, her novel, The Wild Impossibility, is coming out uh, May, May, I think. May. Yep. Um, she has a very long and inc- Varied career before that. Um, She's kind of living the writer's dream right now, in my opinion. She is living the right... But full disclosure, we know Cheryl pretty well. She was a... Well, she's technically still a Grotto member. Right. She just doesn't live in this country. She lives in Italy. She does. She She gave it all up to live in Italy. I had so many conversations with her before she left about the obstacles... In her way of getting Can you to Italy. Imagine though, I mean, just imagine the bureaucracy someplace. Like yeah, that. the bureaucracy was staggering. Yeah, 
Um, and I also, she brought her pets. She brought her pets. That's not easy to bring pets. One of which has since deceased. I'm afraid. Um, No, don't bring that up. But uh, she really went for it, and judging from her Facebook and Instagram, she is pretty happy with her decision. I mean, it looks pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, Larry and I were talking about. Um, off air, do we call that? Before off we mic. Went, off yeah. mic, yeah, because yeah, we're not really on air. Um, of course, the correlative story is under the Tuscan sun, right? Mm. Give it all up and go live in Italy. But I wonder if she hates it when people say that. I wonder that, too. I mean, I'm scared to ask her. Uh, I'm not, so I'm okay, probably going to ask her if, ask if Diane Lane will play her in the movie. By yeah. the way, I have been to that church. Oh, um, good to know. But I think there's some real cool stuff to unpack here, just this whole idea of living an entire life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Cheryl was was a, a publisher of a uh, dance magazine, mm-hmm. not a publisher, an editor, executive editor. And she wrote for the San Francisco Ballet. Yep. And apparently, according to her bio, was a nurse before that, which comes out in her book, which one of the protagonists is a neonatal intensive care That's so nice nurse, which I would really know what you're talking about. It definitely comes out. I, yeah. I mean, I haven't gotten too deeply into the book yet, mm-hmm. but definitely the jargon. That's not one of those things you can fake, I don't no, think. No, completely. And... and uh, you know where the real story is because the obvious story, if you aren't a person who lives that right, is like, ah, emergency, emergency, emergency. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there's a deeper story that's... There is a much deeper story, and I, I won't give away too much about the book, but yeah. being a, a neonatal intensive care nurse is very personal to this character. Oh, I can't even imagine. Oh, was your, your, my child was in... Yeah, mine too. So those opening pages a little hard to read, but yes. he came out, and now let's see, it's one forty. and he's probably awake, but maybe. <laughs> he was out late last night. I but. called my son, who is 20, to ask him to do some stuff, and he couldn't do it right away because he was working out. Well, at least he was working out. Well, that's true. That is that's nice true. that he was that's working true. out. I haven't seemed... Yesterday, I told my son, you know, you need to know something. I hate working out, but I do it every day. Oh, like brushing your teeth. I hate to floss, but I do it. Yeah, because he'd say, I don't feel like it, because you can do when you're 21, but we digress. We should go get Cheryl. Oh, yes, okay. We should learn about Italy. Look, I want to know everything I need to Italy. tell listeners, we're going to talk a lot about Italy, because I'm interested. Why we? I want to make sure that we focus on the writer as well as the person we know. I'm worried we're going to spend too much time. Hey, Cheryl, how's Italy? Man, must be awesome. But okay. If you are interested in Italy, continue to listen. Text, Twitter, whatever, get a hold of us and let us know because I personally am interested. I'm totally interested in Italy, yeah. but I am also interested in Cheryl's no, journey it's true, it's and true, her new true. book and all of that stuff. So, Okay, I'm going to go get her. Go get her. Welcome to the Grotto. That's all I know. That's where it ends. Uh, Io non capisco italiano. I'm no. shaking my head. Welcome to the Grotto Pod, Cheryl. I, this is the first time we've had a guest travel 6,000 miles to come on. <laughs> Just for uh, us. Yeah. I mean, your rider had a lot on it, but we decided, you know, we really want her in here. So we will pay for several flights. <laughs> Does anyone hear that dog barking? I do. I do. What, where, where could it be? It's in the grotto. Someone brought their dog to the grotto, and it oh. wasn't me. Well, there you go. Um, so I guess, you know, our parameters are we don't want to talk about Italy the whole time. That's because true. we want to talk about you as a writer and your output and what you've done and the, and the path that you've traveled. But that path did end up in Italy. So I guess maybe, you know, let's uh, let's multi multitask here and say, so how... Has moving to Italy impacted your writing schedule? What's it like now? Well, 
I have to say that when you move to another country, and then four months later you move again. Right. Oh, and right. And then you have a cat who becomes critically ill, mm. and you spend a minimum of three hours a day going to the vet for months on end, that you have less time for writing than you think you were going to have. Well, how long have you been, how long have you been there? Seven months. Seven months. And have you had time to sort of, obviously you've had a lot on your plate, yes. but have you had time to establish any routines? I'm not a routine person. Hmm, clearly. So, yeah, this is, uh, I, I'm not good at routines. And, and one thing about Italy that's, that I didn't know is that it's a much more spontaneous lifestyle. So people, you know, you're out doing something and you see a friend and all of a sudden you're having lunch. And you don't make plans three weeks out. That and sounds so, lovely. I know, yeah, I think I like that. Lovely. So you, yeah. and, and it and it's good for me because I'm not a real regimented, like, I must write from 6 to 8 every morning. Mm-hmm. I do just you, don't do that. Do you write in bursts? Often, yes. Um, I do like to write most days, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the opportunity, I'll go, you know, 6, 8, 10 hours. Oh, wow. Um, but if I only get an hour in on another day, I'm okay with that. So, yeah, I'm, so I'm what I call consistently inconsistent. Has that always been the way you've yeah. written? Yeah. And but I, part of that was dictated because I right. worked two jobs. Right. So I had to fit the writing in Where around you could. that. And so, yeah, I couldn't just... And this is probably a good time to ask. So your, your jobs were writing-related. You were doing writing for those jobs, but it was nonfiction. Yeah, I was a magazine editor, and I was writing for San Francisco Ballet. Uh, I did a lot of magazine writing before I became an editor-in-chief. So, yes, it was all all journalism. And that whole time, did you have fiction writing in the back of your head or in the front of your head? No, I was doing it. You Uh, were doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, I wrote my first novel in the late 90s. And that is in a drawer somewhere. Um, I really like the story, and I would like to maybe make it a decent book someday, but mm-hmm. it is utter garbage. So, Don't um, you think you have to have that one I think you book? do. I think so, too. And, it, I mean, it did teach me a lot about writing a novel. I mean, grad school certainly helped with that. Um, so, so I was doing that. You know, along the way, mm-hmm. it wasn't. It wasn't like, oh, I'm. You know, it's time to start. Going to move to Italy and become a novelist. Or no, <laughs> which it wasn't like that. everyone who thinks that's a good idea, that's not how it works. Exactly. Like you don't put off your life, then decide you're going to move to a foreign country and make it happen. Like <clears throat> right. you've been working this whole time. It certainly sounds like an idea, a dream you might have as a young person. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can see that. I mean, I. I did not have a dream to be a writer as a young person because mm. I had other goals. And so mm. when I actually had an instructor in college say, oh, you know, you could write. And I was like, eh, because I, <laughs> no was, money in it. I was in doing theater at the time and, you know, couldn't be bothered. Um, but I, but I had always been, I mean, and you know, absolutely avid reader of, of novels from an early, early age and mm. always had that. The dream that everybody has. Someday I'll write a book completely with no plan to actually. So like do high so. in the sky. Yeah, yeah, totally. What were you totally. reading as a kid? What were your, who were your mainstays? Oh, um, well, like every other child, I think uh, A Wrinkle in Time was influential. But I would say probably um, 
probably yearly I would read The Phantom Toll Booth. Norton Justice. Oh, Jester, so good. Um, which is a great book for adults too. Um, but I read I read anything. I just uh, I I'm not good at remembering names of authors off the cuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the you know classic you know children, young adult, whatever books. Um, I I would read anything. I I remember going to the library when I was probably around ten or eleven, and by then I had gone to the adult fiction section. And I got a book off the shelf, and I'm not even going to remember the title of it. It might come to me later, like 3 a.m. Uh, <laughs> As it does. And my mother looked at it and said, oh, that's a wonderful book. Well, later she remembered that it had sex, rather salty scenes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, the, I just I read everything. <clears throat> that's me pulling the Harold Robbins book off of my grandparents' exactly. bookshelf when I was 10. Like, oh, what's this? Exactly. Like, not for you. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because... Uh, I usually end up apologizing for what I read as a kid, but there is one thing that's consistent. I was an omnivore. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever, man, bring it. I'll read it. I was the same way. I was the same way. Yeah. I was that kid who, like, read the cereal box at the table. Oh, not only did I read the cereal box, but I would say, oh, there's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't so I was definitely editor. an editor. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I see. But, I see. but the... Um, Oh, shoot. I just forgot what I was going to say. Say, what did you say? That I also read the cereal boxes? No, there was something before that. Mm. Um, Omnivore? Yeah. Reading Omnivores. It'll it'll come to me later. Let's let's take a theater detour, uh, because that's what you got your degree in. At William & Mary. I did. We do our research. I did. What were you... So what was behind that? What were you hoping to do with that? And let me back up a little further. What did your parents do for a living? Uh, Okay. Um... So my dad, um, he was always involved in the business aspect of science organizations. So he worked for companies like the American Institute of Biological Sciences in D.C. And um, his last job before he died, he was, um, uh, I don't know what his actual title was because those are like real jobs that I don't right. understand. Performance um, reviews, raises, those things. Yeah, just yeah, business stuff. Um, he was at the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian, and which was that really sounds cool. pretty cool. I mean, I grew up at the Smithsonian. You're a DC you know? gal, yeah. So um, that's what he did, and and of course, none of it made any sense to me, and I didn't pay much attention to it uh, because those were office type jobs, mm-hmm. and I never understood what people did in offices. Um, I still don't. Neither, <laughs> no idea. Yeah, and my mom had been um, had been. You know, basically secretarial jobs and that sort of a thing. She um, she didn't work for a while while my brother and I were young, and then she got into doing real estate, which was a very bad choice on her part. She oh, was really? not a salesperson. Oh. Um, but, yeah. Um, so the reason why I bring that up was you say you, you couldn't get your head around what they were doing office-wise. How hard was it for them to get their heads around a theater major? They were not happy. Hmm. That's a, that's a recurring theme in this grotto pod, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Yeah. Parents are like, "What are you trying to do?" Yes. Yeah, um, I think they would have been happy with the editor in chief role. Mm-hmm. Um, that's legit. That's more legit, right? Yeah. But like, you have a desk for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, they weren't happy about that. Um, 
I actually started out as a music major until I realized that I did not have the talent for that. What did you play? Um, I sang. You sang. Yeah. Nice. And um, and then I got I, I got into I performed all through high school, and so you know performing was what I wanted to do. And then at some point in college, I realized that I was also not talented enough and talented enough in that department. But how, did, how you and really moved into technical aspects? So you I were did. so. When I hear that, I hear a kid who must have been incredibly self-aware. But then I remember, as a theater major, they're not shy about telling you that either. I don't think I was self-aware. But to say that, to be a theater kid and go, yeah, I'm just not good enough. Well, by then, I was probably in my sophomore, junior year of college. So not a a kid, definitely not an adult, but just, you know... Just the realization, and so I moved into into the the tech end of it, and ended up um, working at the Goodman Theater in Chicago mm-hmm. um, as a as the assistant master electrician there for three years. So, oh, that which sounds was, crazy you know, cool. Show, I ran the light board, and did I mean, all that of sounds that like stuff. such rich material <laughs> for a novel. <laughs> Yet. Yeah, is it maybe. not like pulling the strings behind the scenes? And, and then at some point, did you become a nurse? I did. That yeah, seems I call like a that left an aberration. Turn. Yeah. yeah, a ten-year aberration. But a lot yeah. of work. Um, yeah. Well, so I I kind of burned out fast on the theater thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad uh, was diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. and you know he was going through a, a really horrible time. And to have an artistic director having a conniption fit about a, a cue <laughs> that was, you know. Point two seconds late, I was like, you know what? There are more important things. It's like we're not curing I, cancer here, so right, you know. Right, right, right. So I I spent a lot of time sitting at my dad's bedside when he was dying, and seeing what a difference the nurses made in his daily life. Mm. Um, Do you feel like at the time you had the caregiver gene? Not in the least. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and and so when he, after he died, I. Just up and went to nursing school. Wow, that blows me away. Which probably would have made him happy. It's, yeah, it's a real but job. it made my mother ecstatic. Yeah, she. In fact, she used to say that she all my life she she said, "Oh, you know, be a nurse, be a nurse, honey." And I said, "I have absolutely zero recollection of that." But yeah, no, wow. Yeah. But I, but it's such a leap. I mean, it's very difficult divide to cross from yeah. theater to something that's so, I don't know, like mathematical and practical and yeah. scientific. And, and well, not only that, I went to, into neonatal ICU. Wow. Which, so, yeah. so both of us. Both our kids were in, in neonatal ICU. ICU. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, both our okay. kids. Our, my, our, there's, our a, there's a very early uh, in your novel, and I was just going to say, <laughs> so your nursing experience did pay off <laughs> because your protagonist is a neonatal intensive care nurse. Yes. There is a point where she is getting briefed by the night nurse, and she says something about, "Oh, I couldn't find a vein or wherever." So, but the is it the fourth skull? Fontanelle? Or whatever? Or? No, what no, a scalp thing. A yeah. scalp for, and I had a bad flashback. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Everything turned out all right, but I, that was the moment I had to leave. Like I can't watch this, and not to talk about me, but <laughs> just the realization at that point. So I was 32 and just a dude. And the realization that there was this guy that I had known for 10 hours and I couldn't watch them do this to him because if anything happened to him, that was it for me. Yeah. Like I've known this guy for 10 hours. (laughs) Oh, same. Oh, my God. Yeah. My kid was in the highest level for a week and very touch and go. 
And I just, yeah, I mean, the men and women who work in those environments, like just that they're able to keep their hearts open while not being destroyed by it is amazing. What do you learn about people in that I mean, I think that environment probably informed you a lot as a writer, eventually just watching Absolutely. people and seeing behavior and how it works. Yes. Um, I was at Children's Hospital Oakland, and it was kind of the height of the crack boom. <sighs> so we were getting tons of, you know, extremely premature babies, 22-weekers, whatever, um, mm. many of them from addicted moms. And, you know, these babies end up with huge problems. Um so often there weren't families involved. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when there were families involved, then, then yeah, I mean, you were seeing the whole gamut. And, and actually, just even among the nurses and the, and the doctors, the relationships and the dynamics of all of that um, is something that's ve- that was very vivid for me in, in writing those scenes mm-hmm. in the book. And the main thing that, that, that I got from that experience for this book, which is just absolutely key for me. And it ties into the whole idea. So, so my protagonist is having these, what she thinks are dreams. Sort and of are supernatural. Not I don't want to label them. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't know what's happening. But she comes to believe that she is living her grandmother's memories. Mm-hmm. And she never met her grandmother. Okay. So, so, so uh, you know, the, the main... You know, theme I was working here is is kind of entanglement in right. terms of and human you, psyche, and you use multiple points of view for that. Yes, but but you know what became very symbolic to me was was in the hospital. My protagonist has the experience, and this becomes key for her, of watching babies who are again the size of your hand. Mm-hmm. Wait until their mother got there. Usually, the mother, because usually there were not intact families. Um, wait until the mother got there before dying. These are these are babies who are just hanging on by the babies thread. somehow know. And I saw it happen too many times wow. to to think that that it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And so that became something key for me to bring into mm-hmm. um, to to kind of illustrate this whole idea yeah. of. You know, there's a line in the book. Can I do that? Can I give this away? <laughs> One line in the book yeah. where, you know, if, if anybody is entangled, it's mothers and their babies. Completely. So, it, Completely. It, so yeah, I got out of 10 years of being a nurse. 10 I got, years. But yeah, also, a little bit of fodder. Is 10 years a long stretch? No, people do it for decades. I can't imagine. I know, me either. Me either. But there is something about being a nurse in that situation and being a writer, which is the willingness to not look away. Yes. And um, one of the hardest things I think in when you're developing as a writer is being willing to sit and stay in uncomfortable places and not just rush to the next scene or like like have it happen off stage so you don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and that might have been you know, a training as well. Yeah. Well, also, you know, a, a absolutely critical function of being a nurse is, is assessment. And what is assessment but observation? Right. And right. what does a mm-hmm. writer do right. but observe? Are, and, are there limits to how much empathy you can have as a nurse in that situation? Will it burn you out if you have too much? It can. It certainly can. Um, I actually left for the opposite reason, that staffing got... Um, restricted. Mm-hmm. And so in a in an ICU situation where we had usually one patient, occasionally one 
less sick patient and another one, we were getting more than that, and that was dangerous, right. in my opinion. Right. But, but the main uh, thing about that was that when there was family, you had no time to give to them. Right. It right. was all about hanging drips and starting IVs and, right. Right. you know, suctioning and, and you know, and, and, and so the human element of it is what I missed. And you probably understood. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember going into the ICU and paying such close attention to what the nurses were doing. Oh, yeah. Like, she told them to sit down. She didn't tell us to sit down. Okay, maybe that's good news for us. You know, she's smiling at me today. Is that good news or bad news? Oh, right. It's extremely, I mean, the, you know, the emotions run super, super right. high. Yeah, intense. But eventually you got out. I did. And so, okay, explain. How, did, how does the transition from that <laughs> Well put. <laughs> succinct. Um, how does one transition from that world, I would say, um, emotionally, but also what led you to go into back into the arts, really, and yeah. dance? Well, I had always I had always been involved in dance. Okay. So I never danced professionally, but I had taken dance for many years, uh, ballet, jazz, modern, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and so dance was, was always there. It was something that I, I, I saw a lot of dance. I took class all the time. Well, and without revealing too much of my online sleuthing, one of your sons was a dancer too, yeah. right? Yes. Yes. My older son uh, danced with San Francisco Ballet. Um, so... You know, for me, it was I. I went to part time as a nurse. I had young children, mm -hmm. um, and then when they, my older son, got to the point of, of going to school, and I was working evenings, and because I was part time, you lose your seniority. So then you have to work all the holidays, and so it just became oh, it's the worst. It was the it worst. was one of yeah. I don't want to get into all the reasons why I left, but that that too was part of it. So the question then was, what can I do? And, and be the mother I want to be. Mm -hmm. um, I am the product of what I call an Uber mother. I guess today, <laughs> I, I guess we call them a helicopter. She mother, drove but, cars in her but, spare time. I mean, she, there was nothing, you know, more important to her, and which of course drove me nuts as a child. Um, but you know, I I wanted to be, you know, that you know. Mm -hmm. Not quite that kind of mother, but available. You know, really you know, focused and um, well, available mother. It must have been effective if you wanted to replicate it as a mother yourself. Well, yeah, to, to some extent. To a lesson. Take, <laughs> take it down a notch. Like not a helicopter, no, I, maybe no, like an upper shelf. No, no criticism of my mom. She was great. Um, you know, but it, it's one of those things when you're a teenager, you don't think oh. it's so great. And then and later on, you, you come to realize, you know, just how how much, you know, personal sacrifice is involved mm -hmm. and, and all of that. So um, so I had this, this misguided idea I, I, uh, that I could um, become a freelance photographer. Um, and I, I, I did a lot of portrait work. I loved being in the dark room. I did some dance photography for a local school. I'm the world's worst business person. Nope. You're, you're probably not even the worst business person in this room. I know. I bet you're number one. <laughs> yeah. You're two and I'm three. No way. I'm three. <laughs> and what I didn't realize is it's 80% business, 20% creativity. Yeah. And yeah. I only liked the creative part. I think so that's freelancing. not going to succeed. Yeah, that's freelancing anything creatively. Yeah. It's all art, I think. Yeah. And part. so then I was like, okay, this, this, you know, this is never going to happen. 
And that's when I said, hey, I was always really a good proofreader. And I took courses and I became a freelance proofreader and copy editor. And I got a one-day gig at Dance Magazine and became an associate editor there. I never left. And then Mm. from there, I went to another dance-related magazine where I became editor-in-chief. So it just... So could it have... It worked out. Snowballed. Could it just have easily been Photography Magazine? Yeah, it was... uh, It it could have. Um, A friend of mine who uh, was also in the dance world told me about this opportunity, and I was like, perfect. Yeah, I'm kidding. I mean, dance was always a passion of mine. So it just worked out. And at what point do you start writing fiction? Uh, that was when I, well, I started dabbling when my, I was pregnant with my first child. Okay. And those were very weak efforts, shall we say? <laughs> um, and sporadic. Um, so it wasn't and then so he was born in 87 and it wasn't until the mid 90s that I started writing fiction seriously. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, um, it's a great story, though, for people to hang on to, right? That you started writing fiction, you kept at it, and you're having your debut novel come out this year. Like, that's really thrilling. Like, what what kind of fiction? Perseverance is everything. I I agree. Well, then you also have to have talent, but perseverance is essential. I would say you need another element that, that just hearing this much of your life story tells me that you have it. It's this... It's not perseverance, but it's this idea of, okay, well, I'm going to pursue something else now. I'm not going to sit around and wait. I'm just going to do it. And it's all doable. It all seems doable to you. I've always been that way. My oldest friend knew from an early age she had just focused. Mm -hmm. This is what I want. I was like, I have no idea. I like this. I like this. I like Mm -hmm. that. I've always been that way. And so I, I can't imagine. And I get bored easily. So I always change things up. Wow. That's moving to Italy. <laughs> Just a little something. <laughs> no, wait. That makes it sound like a whim, and I think it was anything but a whim. Oh, it was not a whim. It was a lifelong. But just thing. to circle yeah. back a little bit, I don't think I, I said it right before, but the idea of a 20-year-old who aspires to be on stage, to look in the mirror and go, yeah, not good enough. What's next? To me, especially given the sort of makeup that most actors and actresses have, to not have your world come crumbling down at that point, I think that really says something. It, it definitely crumbled. Good. I'm glad uh, to hear that. Yeah. It was not it was not easy to to admit that. Yeah. Um, but, but it wasn't, you know, but it didn't defeat you. No, I mean and it's interesting to me that that my life has except for that 10-year aberration in the hospital um, has always been arts focused. Has always been about creativity because I don't come from that. My parents were not right into anything. My mother <clears throat> did take me to dance performances, but that was the extent of it. Um, so I don't know where that came from. Well, isn't it interesting then that that aberration is what shows up in your first novel? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, yeah. It's not about a photographer. Is, that is that is true. There's, I, I don't want to jump the gun but there's as far as talking of, too much about the book no it just i just want there's a there's a couple interesting to me sort of serendipitous things that happened in writing this book oh i want to hear them yeah that, we're not yeah, jumping yeah. any guns yeah, and we're and just like fire away. we're just like wandering around in the past <laughs> and present well so so i had you know and people say to me well where did the idea come from and and my answer for anything i do in, in terms of writing is, I have no idea. It just, like, appeared one day. So I had this idea 
no idea where it came from, of a woman who began to live her grandmother's memories. Whatever. And but I was like, okay, well, how? And how would that this, show? Like, how would you show that? And yeah. Remotely, without just making. And and in the book, I I leave it open. I mean, is this real? Is this all in her head? Is this something metaphysical? What's going on? But as in writing it, I needed something to kind of validate mm-hmm. the decision to to go in this direction. And I was driving and I heard a podcast and I wish I could find it because I can't. I think it might have been Science Friday, but it was about quantum entanglement. Mm. And this is something that my protagonist <laughs> comes to discover in the book. And, and, and it doesn't apply to her, but, but it becomes a little bit of a crutch for her. Um, so quantum entanglement is, 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 is it's not a theory. It's a, a real thing that everything is collect, connected on a molecular level. And it explains how birds can navigate and, you know, all of those sorts of things. But it had not historically been really looked at in terms of human relationships. And so this podcast was about that, the idea that people who are very emotionally connected, there's a degree of entanglement. And I went, okay. There's my hook. And it's not a hook because it doesn't explain what's happening. But for me as a writer... It gave me just that little bit of validation that, okay, yeah. uh, this mm-hmm. is something I, I want. This is a road I want to go down. So that was completely, it, it was motivational for me at that time and, because this was very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and you've, so you've published short stories. No, only one. Oh, I'm you've not published a, short stories. I'm not story. a very good <laughs> short story writer. It's so hard. It, it's a, I mean, long fiction is just my thing. Okay. So. But, how, but I want to write more stories. Hello. Hello. Anyone okay, well, wanting stories. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm asking this for a semi-selfish reason, but so how did you teach yourself how to structure a novel? Mm-hmm. Well, writing the first really crappy one was part of it. Um, I, I, what did that teach you, writing the crappy one? Don't write a crappy one. You know, try, <laughs> I'm very much a try... I'm, I'm what they call, you know, Trial and the, error. A by, by the nose kind of writer. I'm terrible at figuring things out, plotting... Th- as soon as I have to plot something out, when I sit down to write again, it's obsolete. And so, actually, I mean, I had to do some of that in grad school, so I, I probably got some of that from there. Um, I can't tell you exactly. I mean, I read a lot. I read a lot of books on craft. I had fabulous teachers in grad school. Mm-hmm. Where did you go to grad school? USF. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Cheryl was writing fiction for 16 years before you went to grad school. Uh, you went to grad school in 2001 or 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah, I, I Definitely not like super consistently because again I'm the queen of inconsistency. But yes, I had started <laughs> nice. a long time before, nice and this novel took seven years. So yeah, it's a long process. Seven As years. Faust says, "Yeah, Lord, how long is art? How short our lives?" Oh wow! Yeah, oh, good one. Yeah. There you go. I just throw that out there. But uh, you know, it takes a long time to you need to apprentice yourself to the craft for most people. Yeah, yeah. it's a yeah. long. It's a but long but I think I think learning that was just it was just along the way. It mm-hmm. was just figuring it out and 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 definitely you know having those those tools of actual education behind me. Did you have readers you trusted for this novel? For this one. Yes, because I it started as my thesis in grad school. Ah, okay, that that explains a lot. Who did we have in here that had no readers? 
Someone was like, ah, no readers. I just oh. wrote it. Yeah. Was it a novelist? Yeah, yeah. I forget I'm who it was. Surprised. It was someone fairly recently. Uh, is it Frank Portman? No. No, no, it was a woman. Oh, Anyways, when you were saying it took you seven years to write it, I struck on something that I had thought of last night when I was researching. Is the So you've been at the Grotto, I think, the same amount of time I have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so is that three, four years? Three years, four like years? Four, I think. Three and a half. I feel like the changes in your life have really been quantum <laughs> since you started here. And Larry is, like, doing the same Same old guy. Stuff. Yeah, same. I might have had the shirt when you got it. <laughs> you I started the podcast. The I started the podcast. But no, really, I mean, and, and how... Mm-hmm. How um, how on purpose was that? Did you come here? With, was this a change in your life, joining the grotto going, all right, I'm joining this grotto. I'm going to try to ramp down being an editor-in-chief and no, ramp, up. ramp up the writing. No, I had no ability to do that. I, I was working two jobs, and I had to work two jobs. Mm-hmm. So there was no ability to do that. Um, I joined the Grotto because I was straight out of grad school and I needed a community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not, I was just talking to another Grottoite about this, uh, Maurice F. I'm not the kind of person who, who likes to write in the company of other writers, but but you do need that support. You do mm-hmm. need that, that, you know, networking and, and all of that. Can we speak a little bit about that? For example, I mean, just in terms of, getting a book deal like it's not that common that someone can get an mfa and turn their mfa thesis into a published novel and was being part of this community helpful for that oh absolutely um it was key right and you know part of it is is getting the motivation to continue mm-hmm. um part of it is using your resources so, you know, I mean, let's be totally real. Let's do 75 it. agents ignored my book. Right. Oh, that's so important for people to hear, though, yeah. right? No. no, I mean, this was not like a walk in the park. The no. key word here is ignored. Well, a lot of them, you know, when they ignore it, you know that's a no. Right. So right. some of them actually said no. Right. But that's what I don't think people understand. No you response say, oh, is quite silence. usual. I got 15 silence. rejections. Yes. But I also got 100 nothings. Right. Exactly. Nothing is common. Nothing is common. It is yeah. common. And and the frustrating thing was the people who did respond to me would say, you know, oh, it's just not right for us. Well, you know, I'm I was an editor. I yeah. know what that means. That means nothing. You know, so <laughs> go away. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, it it was it was utterly depressing. It was defeating. Um, I think for a while I just you know, put it aside. Um, and then, you know, I heard about a publisher who would take unagented work. And I oh, said... Oh, I didn't know you had gone unagented. Okay. And, well, yeah, I mean, I wanted an agent. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, but, no, that was not to be. So so I sent it to this publisher, and she said, I, I, I love a lot of things about this, but I'm going to pass. Um, for these reasons, mm-hmm. and if you want to do a revision, I'll look at it again. And so I said, I think I know what you're talking about, but could you be more specific? And she, bless her heart, this is yeah, Regal, I think this Regal is House pretty generous. Yeah, Janie Royal. Okay, we've heard good things about Real House. Reams of detailed feedback. Wow! And I was just like, thank you. I know that's amazing. And of course, then I did the the thing that writers always do and say, what? Absolutely not. How could you think <laughs> that? Screw those guys. Yeah, yeah, they don't exactly. get me at all. So, you know, that's stage one. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like Denial. the stages. Yeah, exactly. 
And then I realized she was absolutely spot on. And so I did a major revision. I took a year to do it. I think I remember when you were doing that. Yeah. And I sent it back and she took it. Oh, great so, story. You know, yeah. I mean, this. You know what you the know, key moment of that story is? You did the revisions. Mm. I love revision. But it's hard to have that. I know. I know. No, no, I mean, to me, that's the creative part of writing. I feel like anybody can slam out a first draft, in my opinion. Um, But it's hard to, I mean, if someone had said to you when you were writing that book, okay, so in the end of this, someone's going to give you feedback, and it's going to take a year, another year of your life, to do those revisions. I'm pretty stubborn, Anthony. Are you? Here's the other thing. That year is going to happen either way. That's how I look at it. It's like, the year's going to happen. Am I going to have a book at the end of it if I don't do this revision? No. Or likely not. The question, I think, is how important is this story? Mm. Yeah. You know, how much do you want this story? It's not about this book, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Because you can write a different book. It's how important is this story to you that you want other people to hear it? And at the time, I had no idea it would be quite as politically pertinent as it is now. Interesting. Um, that was just chance. But, you know, th- this this is a book about, you know, uh, about a woman who's, who's, you know, shooting herself in the foot at every turn, who doubts herself constantly, who does, you know, who, who blames herself for things, who is encountering a life experience that she cannot understand and then becomes obsessed by it. Um, and you know, it has to do with motherhood, you know, with love, with racism, with, I mean, all of these things. And it was a story I wanted someone to read. Mm -hmm. And now they will. So, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, you know, it has to be this huge book. And I just would like someone to say this book mattered. So do you think, you think that level of muted ambition is a function of having lived some of your life already. If you were 22 years old and you had written this book, would you be more likely to think, no, no, I'm going to write a grand, you know, the most important novel ever written. That was a very delicate way to say I'm no spring chicken. Well, I, I think <laughs> yes, it applies but... to more than one person in this room. <laughs> like everyone. Yeah, has. I think so. I mean, I, you know, the, the, from 2005, uh, until 2012, 2011, those those six years were incredibly traumatic for me on a lot of levels. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I think that 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 made me even more. It it it, it made me more focused. It made right. me this this book. Is is so important to me that I need to keep working on it. Well, it seems like you would come through a period, come out of a period like that, having crystallized what's really important to you, and maybe this book is part of that. You know, like okay, here's what I want to write. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's it's really a it's a, an accumulation of of rough experiences involving you know you know death and love and motherhood and all of those things and everybody has them um for me they just sort of melded in a way that made you know that made a story that that I just wasn't going to let go of um 
I don't know. I, I, I think everybody feels that mm -hmm. way about about their the novel they're working on. Um, you have to if you're gonna do right. if you're gonna stick with it. Yes. Can't dive in halfway, right? Because yes. I think, like you said, everyone has—not everyone, whatever—many people have the ability, and it's still a big accomplishment to write a first draft of a book. That's a big accomplishment. It is a big, yeah. and but to be willing to stick with it through revision after revision and so much rejection—that has to be a, you know a passionate attachment. Yeah. Or you just can't you can't make it through. It does, and I—I I mean, you know, I was talking to some people here at the Grotto today. It's like, I mean, you know, you've. You have to write the story that is that is so compelling to you that you can't not write it, and and so being in Italy, I thought, okay, you know, I'm spending a lot of time, of course, with publicity for the book, and mm -hmm. you know, I was wondering how you're stuff. doing that from from afar. Yes, from it's nine hours ahead, possible. Yes, now especially. <laughs> but I thought I would go. I have a middle grade novel in the works, mm -hmm. um, and that is not something I ever thought I would write. Um, and it's set in San Francisco, and, and I'm, you know, a decent chunk into it, so I thought I would go back to that. And but I you abandoned could, it. I could not write that book right now. Mm -hmm. I could not get my head back here. My, yeah. I was so immersed in Italy. Oh, in I'm interested of, to hear this because I okay, often think when you're not. Ask it. Ask it. What? Come on. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know. Ask me your Tuscany question. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to ask you a different question. My question is, my observation is I have found it easier to write about places when I'm not there. Oh, yeah. Oh. And so I thought you were going to say, oh, I'm so caught up now in writing about San Francisco, but that's not at all what's happening. Not at all. Interesting. No. I, and I, I mean, part of it is, of course, I'm learning another language, and mm -hmm. I spend entire days where I don't speak English. Wow. So, you know, you're and, and I'm, I, I was... I moved to Italy, and then four months later, I moved to a different part of Italy. So, you know, there's, you know, all of that acclimation. Also, are the dialects extremely different around Italy? Yeah, but everybody speaks basic Italian, too. Okay. I mean, it depends where you are, but certainly... Have you read that you book? You do learn a lot of dialects. Um, I can't remember who it's by. Is it by Jampa Lahiri? Yes. Yeah, have yes. you read it about... Um, no, I started to read it, and I stopped because, as a language learner, I, I found out that she... Um, did not allow them to correct her mistakes as so she was learning. She was writing it in a language she was learning. She so wrote she made this errors. book in Italian first, and then it was translated into English. Oh, is that crazy? It's that so is crazy. So it's, yeah, it's Italian on one page and English on oh, the other. Wow. But it's but so as a language cool. learner, I didn't want to read it because there were errors in it. Right. So that was why I stopped. I mean, but this is so fast. So we're about three fourths of the way through. This is a good time to segue into. Oh yes. Let's talk about Italy. Let's talk about. The desire to go there and where it was born of and a few of the things you had to do to get there. And now that you're there, how's it feel? Italy is fabulous. Oh, so how long amazing. had you wanted to move there? Since childhood. Since childhood. I'm Italian-American, and that was a huge part of my identity. I We knew no other Italian-Americans where I really? grew up. How can that be? Exactly. Well, where my grandparents were, they lived in Little Italy, part of Syracuse, mm. New York. Mm -hmm. um, so I was exposed to that and, you know, exposed to the language in my grandparents' house and whatnot. My, my parents, by the time they had kids, my, my dad had spoken only Italian as a child and, and wow. in the home. But by the time he had kids, he had not been speaking it, so we were not brought but up. But what a, what a diaspora Italian you are. No other Italians. No other Italians right there. Yeah, it was wow. very kind of... Um, yeah, um, more like 
Northern European wasps. You know, yeah, they call this them wasps. In DC um, or outside of DC? Northern Virginia, Northern seven Virginia. miles. That outside sounds of very waspy. Yeah. So, so we didn't know it. So, <laughs> so I always felt more Italian American than American, and mm-hmm. it was just it was so important to me. And and I had the, it was a total like oh I'm going to live in Italy someday with no no thoughts that this would ever become possible. I didn't even travel outside the U.S. for the first time until my 40s. Wow. So, you know, but the older I got, the more intense the desire became. And my dad died young, and he never got to do the things that he Mm. had always dreamed of doing. And so I was, you know, I was at that time saying, I'm not going to let that happen to me. And then, of course, I did. Um, Mm. But I got to a certain point where I was like, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it while you're healthy and mobile. Mm-hmm. And because if you, you know, if wait. you wait too long, right. it's not going to happen. Right. And your sons are grown and yeah, have their exactly. careers and their lives. Exactly. And- yeah. And, and, you know, I was tired of working two jobs mm-hmm. and you can live much more cheaply in Italy. And- <laughs> did you, did you yeah. set a, did you set a goal, a date? I did. I woke up one day in summer of 2016. <laughs> okay. Love this. And I said... Five years. I'm moving in five years. And about three weeks later, I said, I'm moving next year <laughs> um, if I can get a visa. And getting a visa yeah, I would think, easy. I was going to say, I would think. So did you I have to look at your heritage your in order to get a visa? No, that's, I am, I am in the process of, of um, trying to get dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was a definitely. huge pain in the neck. I remember having that conversation with you. Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, but so in order to go without the citizenship, you you can't get a work visa. I mean, it's just literally impossible. Mm-hmm. You, if you can work for an American company over there, uh, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to teach. Well, join the masses of people <laughs> who want to teach over right. there. Um, it's, it's very, very, very hard to get a work visa. Um, and, you know, there aren't many other kinds. I mean, there are a lot of different kinds, but they're all related to work or being a student. So the only thing um, for someone like me to do is get an elective residence visa, and they're, they're not easy to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, I just, you know, I just need to be there long enough, and the citizenship will come through. And, and if the citizenship doesn't happen one way, I can get it simply by being there because I'm second generation. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Was there any point where you were afraid if you didn't act that you would never act? Yes, absolutely. I know it kind of forces your hand when absolutely. you're just like, I'm going. Yeah. It, it, it was, it's one of these things. I mean, I always say I've never made a, a bad decision based on instinct. Hmm. I've made many bad decisions based on letting my logic brain, information know, tell me, you know, being rational, being logical. Right. I completely uh, agree. Wrong, I feel wrong, the same wrong. way. And it was just like, do this now. Wow. I just so excited. But I think for a lot of people, they would think like, okay, I'm going to go to Italy and then my writing life will open up in a new way. But what I hear you saying is it hasn't really happened like that, but you're still happy. No, my writing life hasn't opened up in a new way. I I have started a new novel set right. in Italy, oh, and I, it is I mean, in Italy. And, and that's why I didn't go back to the middle grade one. Yeah. It's just the middle grade novel I still want to write. Yeah, and I think in another couple of years I'll be ready to. But right now I'm my well, head, yeah. In, yeah, in every way, I is can understand so involved that. in Italy that I yeah. needed to to do that. Yep. So so 
Did you? Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity. So did you, amazing. For this novel, did you take an idea you already had and move it to Italy, or is it something that occurred to you in Italy? No, it's an idea I had for a novel set in Italy before, um, although it's already deviating because that's just me. That's I just what don't happens. ever do anything in a linear fashion. Um, but, yeah, it's it's... All I'll say about it is it has to do with fine art and obsession. I knew you were going to say fine art. Oh, yeah. so jealous. You may not be the only person in this room obsessed with fine art. No. I would, I'm going to Spain, not to Italy, in the fall to look at some Italian women uh, Renaissance artists. <laughs> but, <laughs> to, to look at some Italian women? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could get away with that. <laughs> Renaissance artists. Um, but, uh, yeah, sooner or later I would like to go to Italy and look at some... Art in person. Well, come visit. So I you got a place to stay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, <laughs> maybe if someone spoke Italian, that'd be good. Yeah. Um, so we are just about out of time now. Um, short of going to Italy, Cheryl, how can people find you? Say on the internet. Tell us in Italian. <laughs> I don't think that would be very useful. So, yeah, they can find me all kinds of ways. I'm on Instagram as. Uh, Cheryl Dot That's right. Uh, Good uh, pictures. Can I just say, like uh, jealousy, inducing yeah, pictures. I'm sort of like a second or third level Italophile, but mm-hmm. those pictures. I know. Same. Yeah. Same. Um, well, and, you know, it's hard not to. It's hard not to indulge in. in it's an but indulgent that place. is what Instagram is for. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. And you have a new website, right? I have a new website. Oh. Cheryl A and, yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm told I should be on on Pinterest, but I probably won't do that. Yeah. Um, Can't draw the line somewhere. Yeah, yeah, Lordy, yeah. that yeah. makes me tired just hearing yeah. about it. And, and interestingly enough, if you, if you pack up and move to Italy and quit your jobs, you'll show up on a lot more LinkedIn searches than you ever did when you were working. Interesting. Huh. Uh, are you doing any kind of touring for this book? Uh, no, I'm going to do readings here, hopefully. I have one thing scheduled and trying to get a few more things on the books, and so in various parts of the Bay Area. And then um, I'm going to be doing um, something in the D.C. area. And let's say the title of the book and the pub date. Oh, yes. I said The Wild it. Impossibility, and it comes out May 9th, 2019. Exciting. What say you, BQ? I say you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at bquintrest or online at bridgequinauthor.com. And I say you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at that Larry Rosen. Not this one, that one. Uh, I do not have a website, but my other podcast does. It is isitgoodforthejews.com. As for us here at the old Grotto Pod, edging toward 100 episodes. Can you believe it? Wow. That's impressive. That's you a can, lot of time in the closet. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> Poured in more than anyone else in this city. You can reach <laughs> us at the Grotto Pod, Twitter and Instagram. Email us, grottopod at gmail.com. You know, we didn't do this ourselves. It may seem that way when you're in this room, just us, but it's not. There's other no, people involved. No, no, no. And we need to thank them. Okay. Beth Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, and she, Lori Ann Doyle. All are. excellent souls. All excellent souls and vital to the continuation of this podcast. Yes. That's it for me. What do you got? I just want to say that you should be like Cheryl and read, write, and just keep working. Thank you.